0: Burn Your Bridges. That is the title of this morning's sermon. If you're unfamiliar with the phrase, it basically means to be so committed to a task that you remove any way of backing out of it. It comes from the old military practice of burning ships or bridges after crossing a body of water uh, to then go and fight a war or to conquer a people. And uh, the obvious meaning of it and the the obvious purpose of doing such a thing is to uh, basically say to all of the soldiers, you ain't going home, boys. So you better man up and you better get ready to fight to the death. We do not have a backup plan. Well, Elisha, he burned his bridges by burning his yoke and oxen. He gave up everything, to follow the Lord. Have you done the same? Another man like Elisha was William Borden. William came from a wealthy family. They had a great success in silver mining in Colorado, which meant that the family were part of the upper class. So much so that when William finished school at just 16 years old, his parents sent him on a a chaperoned trip around the world. Now, that might seem within reach for many people today. After all, you could, uh, as a teenager, work at McDonald's for a few years and save up enough to be able to go on a trip around the world. But this was the, the late 1800s. International travel was far less common and far more difficult than it is today. And as life-changing as that trip was for William, something even more significant happened to him before this trip. When William was six years old, his mother became a Christian. And as a child, she took him to church where he first trusted in Christ. On his eighth birthday, his mother gave him this Bible verse, which would become the keynote of his life. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now we'll hear more about William later, but I tell you about him to get us to reflect on ourselves, our own lives as we consider the question that we asked before. What does it take to follow the Lord? What does it take to follow the Lord? Well, as we explore Elisha's life in our passage this morning, and as we see his response to the call of God, we see two things that he did, which have direct implications for us today. Firstly, he answered the call. And secondly, he paid the cost. He answered the call and he paid the cost. And those are my two points this morning. And so let's have our eyes open, our hearts open, our minds open as we dive into this text. Let's begin at point one. Answering the call. Well, at this stage in our series, Elijah's successor enters the scene in what most English Bibles title, The Call of Elisha. If you see it there in the Bibles in front of you, and most English translations will give it this title. What do you think of when you hear the word call? Call can mean a few things in the English language. You can call someone by uh, yelling out their name from across the room, or you can call them by picking up your phone and dialing their number, or you know these days just tapping the contact on your phone. You can be called by something that's not a person, like the call of the wild or the call of adventure, by which we mean there is a certain activity or environment or place that is is compelling us toward it. It's calling us to it. And certainly a a prominent view in our very individualized culture today is the definition that refers to what what I feel like I was put on earth to do. You you don't have to look far to find motivational speakers and influencers telling people to figure out their calling. Our calling in that sense is, you know, our job or vocation or whatever it is that we do that gives us a sense of meaning and purpose. In the Bible, we see the term call often referring to a person being set apart by God for a certain task. And that's the sense that we see here with Elisha's calling, which is why our Bibles give this passage that heading. It is his call. And that call comes via a cloak from Elijah. As you might remember from last week, Elijah was commissioned by God to go and anoint three people. Hazael to be king over Syria, Jehu to be king over Israel, and Elisha to be prophet in Elijah's place. Well, here we see the only one of these anointings that Elijah actually fulfills. In 2 Kings 8 and 9, Elisha will actually be the one who ends up carrying out these other anointings, even though Hazael's isn't really an anointing, and it's actually his servant who carries out the anointing of Jehu. Well, given where Elijah is at, that seems to be pretty consistent with his current state of mind, doesn't it? As we saw last week, Elijah's hopes were dashed because Jezebel and Ahab didn't repent after this incredible showdown at Mount Carmel and God bringing, raining down fire. Yet they refused to believe. And so Elijah fled, went to Mount Sinai to have a complaint to God about how God's plan wasn't working. Surely, God, he would said, you realize that you haven't done what you were supposed to do. I was meant to bring about the restoration of Israel. But God basically shuts him down and says, Elijah, you don't know what I'm doing. I am still in control. My will is still control being done. And so in verse 16 God tells Elijah to find Elisha in Abel-Meholah and anoint him as his successor. And so Elijah obediently goes. But you can picture him kind of grumbling and mumbling under his breath as he as he makes his way to the town of Abel-Meholah and asks for Elisha the son of Shaphat. You know, you can picture him being salty about the fact that God didn't do things the way that he wanted them done, can't you? What does Elijah find when he reaches Elisha? Well, let's read verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Twelve yoke of oxen. That's twelve pairs of oxen. Twenty-four oxen. In case you're wondering, that's a lot of oxen. These days, the equivalent piece of farming equipment would, would be a tractor. And if you have a standard farm these days, then you could get something like this. A a 2020 John Deere tractor that will set you back about $32,000. Or if you had more extravagant needs or just simply had money to burn, uh, you could get one of these tank-looking things and drop a cool half million dollars. Even though that's a 2019 model. Well, Elisha's setup lives in this second category. You know, you, most farmers only need one, one yoke of oxen to be able to do what they need to do. And so Elisha's 12 yoke of oxen here indicates to us that his family have got some serious coin. They are rich. And you know, that's not an unimportant detail. Because as we all know, the more a person has, the harder it is to give it up. You know, I haven't heard of too many people gladly going back to live on a student income after they've been working full time for a few years. This is why the, the rich young ruler of Luke 18 who wanted to follow Jesus ended up walking away sad because he couldn't give up his great hoard of wealth. And it's also why Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Elisha is rich. And don't let the outcome of this story cause you to miss the significance of this. Before Elisha became Elijah's successor, he was working for a successful family and was likely a successful farmer himself. He came from wealthy stock. And that's something worth pausing to think about. Because, you know, on a global scale, all of us here in this room would be considered wealthy. And so it's worth us reflecting on ourselves? Would you be willing to burn that bridge? Are you ready to spend your superannuation on following Christ? Well, Elijah sees Elisha with his army of oxen and completes his anointing act by doing what exactly? He passes by him and he casts his cloak upon him. Now, it's worth noting something here. Anointing was an act that usually involved the pouring of oil over people or objects to indicate that they were being set apart for a certain task in the Lord's service. In the Old Testament, that usually meant priests and other sacred items in the tabernacle or in the temple and kings. And for a king, often that would be done by pouring oil out of a horn. And I mention that because it gives you a sense of the importance of this act of anointing, of what God had told Elijah to do. There's a solemnity to anointing, a sense of this being a sacred act that has been instituted and commanded by God. And yet here is Elijah basically just chucking his jacket on Elisha as he walks past without even a word, without even stopping He's just he's walking along and then he says, Here you are, buddy. You're the next great prophet. See you later. You get a sense in the story's description here that Elijah doesn't even bother to, to just stop to talk to Elisha, to even explain anything to him about what's going on because he moves so fast that Elisha has to run after him. We see that in verse 20. You can picture Elisha, you know, probably by the Holy Spirit's work, or perhaps because Elijah had a reputation and he knew what he looked like. Uh, Elijah, Elisha somehow understands that what's just happened uh, and is is this significant act by this man of God, and he tries to gather himself as he as he ties up the oxen to run after Elijah. Just wait, wait, come back. There's no ceremony. No oil, no solemn event. Elijah just tosses his cloak on him and keeps on walking. Now, cloaks did have some significance. And we see that in 2 Kings 1, eight and 2.8. But this is still a far cry from what we would expect an anointing is supposed to look like. If you've heard the phrase to uh, pass on the mantle or to take up the mantle, this is where it comes from. Mantle is another word for cloak, and the phrase is referencing this very event, or the one in 2 Kings 2, after Elijah is taken up to heaven and Elisha succeeds him. And the meaning of that phrase as we use it today is basically this, the meaning of what's going on here in this exchange. Elisha is called to be Elijah's successor. As I mentioned before, Elisha's call is to follow Elijah. And though though that's the case and though that's what we see in verse 20, I'm sure he knows that this is ultimately a call to follow God. Elisha he recognizes this. He recognizes that this is not going to be a walk in the park. And that's why he says, well, uh, just let me go back and say goodbye to my folks first. He may never see them again. To which, as seems consistent to what we've uh, seen already, the disgruntled and discouraged Elijah seems to just rather uncaringly say, oh, look, do what you want, man. I'm not the boss of you. What if I go back again? What have I done to you? He says. And rather than taking him under his wing, he just goes, ah, whatever, man. Elijah, instead of recognizing that here in front of him is someone that the Lord has anointed, whom God has given him to mentor. Instead, he just seems disinterested in discipling the young man. You know, there's something in that for us. Are we willing to humble ourselves and to place God's will over our own and to place His glory over our own and to pour the necessary love, sacrifice, humility, and teaching into the next generation? Are you on the lookout for others that you can pass the mantle of the gospel onto? Well, thankfully, Elisha is unfazed by this. And he answers the call of God on his life. The Apostle Paul uses this same sense of call in a few of his letters, which we saw when preaching through 1 Corinthians, right there in the first verse. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and some of us might look at that usage and think to ourselves, yes, that's what I need. I need to discover my calling. I need to know what God wants me to be. Is it to be an evangelist or, or a, a teacher or a, a dentist? Now, it's a longer conversation for another time or, or perhaps one we can have over question time. But I think that whenever the Bible uses the term in this sense, it is referring to unique callings. Paul's call to apostleship was unique. Elisha's call to be Elijah's successor as a prophet was unique. Jesus calling the apostles were, was unique. And as I mentioned before, the word calling isn't even present in our passage here with Elisha. So for us to think that such a calling exists for every single one of us is stretching the definition of call beyond the borders of the Bible. Now, just uh, lock that one away for now. and, And like I said, we can talk about it later. But I say this because overwhelmingly in the New Testament, the sense of call that is most often referred to When we're not just talking about, you know, a general use of the word call, like, you know, they called him to come over. Overwhelmingly, the the sense of call that is most often referred to is the call to follow Christ. It is the call to follow Christ. One of many examples is again right there in the next verse of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians called to be saints together. Another great example is 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter talks about him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this makes sense. It gives yet another meaningful angle to the, the Greek word for church, ecclesia, which literally means the ones called out. And for us today, this call to follow Christ is the call of supreme importance. Now, contrary to what the motivational speeches might tell you, responding to and finding this calling matters far more than any other. And it is the call of the gospel. Jesus made this very call when he said in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And if you are here this morning and you have not yet turned away from following everything else in life, from all of the the temptations and the sins of the world and turned to following Jesus, then this is the call that you must answer today. Because it's only in answering this call that you can truly discover what your heart and your soul so desperately longs for and needs. You see, people today are answering all sorts of calls to try and figure out who they are. You know, they answer the call of, of the girlfriend, you know, both literally and figuratively. Or the call of, of adventure or, or the bottle or, or the call of success. And as a result, what do we see? Well, nothing lasts. We get bored, bored. We change change careers. We change spouses. We change families. We change cities. We change friendships groups. And we keep changing these because we're looking for someone or something to tell us who we are. Or, as is perhaps more common these days, we say that only you can tell you who you are. And so we pick and choose which identity markers are going to be the ones that define us? Our sexuality, our ethnicity, our political affiliation, our activism, our work, our family. And we, ch- and we pick and choose how we want people to see us. We hide the parts of us that are hideous and we promote the things about us that are praiseworthy. We curate our images in person and online, to try and uh, present who we want everybody to see. But all such attempts at discovering your identity are doomed to fail, aren't they? Why? Because none of us, in our sinfulness, can see truly enough to shoot straight. Not even with ourselves. And so at best, the picture that we get of ourselves, the picture that we create of ourselves, whether defined by others or defined by us, is a distortion of the truth. You see, this is why we must answer the call of Christ first. Because there is only one who sees us as we truly are. Who sees all our flaws and all our faults. For, and from whom we cannot hide anything. He sees every wrinkle. Every blemish. Every imperfection. And that same one. He doesn't look at us and see all of that and think, Eww! I don't want you. No, he does the complete opposite. He sees you, sees you as one made in his image, one who knows you completely. His view of you is is ultra high, extreme definition. And even in spite of that, he lays down his life for you and calls you to leave your confused clinging to sin and to live fully in him. When you answer the call of Christ, every other call finds its proper place. When you answer the call of Christ first, every other call finds its proper place. Because life is no longer about living for others' approval or living for your own approval, but living for God's approval. And that comes to you by his goodness and by his grace, not by anything that you can offer to him. The only way to truly find yourself is to find him first. The only way to truly find yourself is to find him first. How willing are you to let you be defined by God? How willing are you to confront the truth about yourself and then let Jesus define and shape you? I reckon Elisha knew this. I reckon that's why he was so ready and so willing to burn his bridges and his yoke and oxen to follow the Lord. He knew that God was worth it, no matter where God called him. Now, don't be fooled. The call to follow Christ isn't found on a, on a glossy, colorful poster or a, or a picture-perfect website ad. But just like with all things that are truly worth it, it will cost you. And that brings me to my second point, paying the cost. Let's read verse 21. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he rose and went after Elijah and assisted him. How does Elisha respond to the call? He goes back and he sets the half-million-dollar John Deere on fire. Elisha creates his own point of no return with this act. And he says, God, you have called me. I am following and there is no going back. A yoke was a wooden beam that was placed on pairs of oxen that could connect them so that they could drag a plow together. And Elisha obviously thought that the yokes made excellent fuel for a big cook up. Now, I'm no farmer or butcher, but i'm pretty sure that 12 pairs of oxen would be a lot of meat perhaps that's why the passage says that he fed the people and not just his parents or his family he probably fed the entire town and the language of sacrifice here indicates not an actual ritual sacrifice Because proper sacrifices in Israelite religion were only done in the temple. But the language is used to show that what Elisha does here is symbolic of his personal sacrifice. He has given up everything to follow the Lord and he is not looking back. I'm sure Elisha knew that the life of a prophet wasn't one that people went into because you know, they wanted a cushy job from which they could then just coast into a, an easy retirement. As we've seen with Elijah, being a prophet was often a difficult and lonely calling, especially when confronting a king who was walking away from God. I'm sure Elisha knows this. And yet here he is burning his security and his livelihood. Also that he can do what exactly? To go after Elijah and assist him, as verse 21 says. He left wealth and a successful career. Also, that he could be the servant of a salty prophet who's number one on Jezebel's hit list. Elisha paid the cost. Ask just about any person today whether they think Elisha would end up having buyer's remorse, and I have no doubt that we would all instinctively say, uh, yes swap wealth and financial prosperity for a life of uncertainty, ridicule, hardship and perhaps even an early grave? No deal. When most of us do the cost-benefit analysis on this, the profit and the profit uh, ends up significantly in the red. Well, you know, another prophet would later rise up. And he would call people to follow him. And his demands would be even greater. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9, 57. Luke chapter 9, 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The cost of following Jesus is nothing less than complete, total, utter Devotion to him. And did you notice the last example? There's certainly some kind of hat tip to Elisha going on here, with the reference of the man wanting to say farewell to those at his home and Jesus talking about the plow. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that what Elisha did was wrong by going back, but there's definitely an escalation to what he is calling people to do. I mean, think about it, Elisha literally set fire to his livelihood, and he followed God. All he did was go back to say goodbye to his folks, which he, he, he probably never saw again. You, know, you would be hard-pressed to find a more wholehearted devotion, more wholehearted sacrifice in the whole Old Testament. And yet Jesus is saying, as we've seen the last few weeks, one greater than Elisha is here. One greater than Elijah is here. And the cost of following him goes even beyond that. 99.99999% of you still isn't enough to follow Jesus. Caring more about living comfortably isn't enough if you want to follow Him. Even putting family obligations above following Jesus just won't cut it. And certainly the person who keeps reminiscing and dwelling on what they've left behind isn't fit for the kingdom. That's a high cost. Jesus's price is nothing less than total surrender. Alexander McLaren, a Scottish Baptist minister who was in his older years when William Borden was just a boy, said it like this. The meaning of being a Christian is that in response for the for the gift of a Whole Christ. I give my whole self to Him. You see, the term nominal Christian is an oxymoron. You can't be a nominal Christian. It's impossible. Such a thing doesn't exist. You can only be described as someone who claims the title of Christian and who is nominal. There is no part-time membership with Jesus. There is no halfway house. There is no lukewarm option. You are either all in or you are not in. You are either following him with both eyes firmly fixed on him and or you are chasing a lure that will drag you down to hell. Do you think that's a price worth paying? Do you think that's a fair cost? You see, nobody intentionally pays good money for a terrible deal. As a penny-pinching Filipino, I learned this from a very early age. Even though I hate bargaining, which makes me a failure as a Filipino, I still know value when I see it. I want my dollar to go further than a dollar. That's why I enlist the help of friends when fixing problems with my car rather than taking it to a mechanic. And even if you're not as tight as I am, I'm sure you don't willingly go around looking for ways that you can be ripped off. I've never heard of anybody being excited about investing in a a fortune bottom 500 company that is guaranteed to fail and lose you a lot of money. Nobody does that. And so, if this is the case, if we all think this way, if we all want to make sure that the cost that we pay suits the reward, then let me ask you this. If you found the greatest treasure in the world, and you were able to pay the cost of getting it, even if it cost you your life, Why wouldn't you pay it? Wouldn't you sell your house to buy a gold mine or spend your inheritance investing in Bitcoin if you knew for sure that it was about to increase in value by a thousand percent? And wouldn't you be absolutely overjoyed about that? You see, something changes in your life when you know that what you are working for and what you are working towards is worth it. The 50-year-old who's been working on a mango farm, picking mangoes for 30 years because it's just a job and he needs something to pay the bills, experiences the picking of mangoes very differently from the 20-year-old who just started and has never had an income before in her life and is looking forward to buying her first car. It's the same task, and yet the experience of it by both people is completely different. In the same way, the person who surrenders their whole life to Jesus takes on each new day, whatever that day might bring, with a completely different set of spectacles than the person who hasn't even if they were doing the exact same task. Elisha knew this. He had no plan B. He put all his chips into following Jesus. He didn't finish his masters in farm management just in case the whole prophet thing didn't work out. He was all in. And William Borden also came to know this. One Sunday in 1905, when William was visiting a church in London and he heard a preacher speak on Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 8, William knew that there were parts of his life he was convicted about the fact that he hadn't totally surrendered to Christ. And so in response to that message, he once again, surrendered all of himself. That message which called people to respond to Jesus today while you still have the opportunity just as Hebrews 3 does is still true. If you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. And that call from the pen of the author of hebrews is still the same today it's as true today in 2021 as it was in 1905 as it was in the first century and as it was in the millennia before that do not harden your heart as william's biographer puts it the wise man accepts christ today the foolish puts it off till tomorrow So if that's true, if you have heard the message of the gospel, if you have heard the call of Christ, why haven't you responded to his call to follow him? And if you have responded to Jesus's call and you do follow him, Why do you insist on looking back? Why do you keep longing for the things that you left behind? What are you waiting for? Why do you hesitate? Why do you balk? Why do you keep clinging to your life? I'll tell you why. Because you love your life. Because you don't believe God when he says that living a life of total surrender to him really is the best life you could possibly live. Because you don't believe that if you stopped chasing money and career and pleasure and fun and instead gave all of that up for Jesus, that your life really will be better. Because the circumstances that you find yourself in make you wonder whether a God who promises suffering really is worth the cost. Because you know that if you really did do what Elisha did. If you really did burn your bridges and put Jesus above your family or whatever else. That it would be difficult. That it would be lonely. And it would seem extreme and fanatical to everyone. Because you look around and you see so many other lukewarm Christians who seem to be able to balance having Jesus as well as all the other stuff that they want. And you think to yourself, well, surely if they can live that way and God's cool with that, then so can I, right? Because the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, the kingdom of heaven, the eternal life and the living water that Jesus promises, they're they're just too intangible. They feel out of reach. They feel like a dream. And frankly, the rewards that are right in front of you seem, well, more rewarding And because you're afraid of buyer's remorse. You're afraid that if total surrender to Jesus turns out to be not that great. You're afraid that you will have wasted the limited numbers of years that you have on this planet. You're afraid that the cost Jesus demands and the payoff that he promises is not actually worth it. How do I know? Well, firstly, because the Bible tells me so. (laughs) Like in Matthew 7, 14, when Jesus says that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few find it. And I know because in my sin, I know that I'm afraid of buyer's remorse. Friends, the cost is high. It is no less, it is nothing less than total surrender. But the cost is absolutely, unmistakably, unregrettably worth it. Elisha knew this. As did William Borden. On William's trip around the world, he was struck by the spiritual wastelands all over the globe where people were enslaved to false religions and the gospel had not yet been preached and was on this trip as a mere teen that William decided that he would devote his life to taking the gospel to the Uyghur Muslims of northwest China. After graduating from Yale University and Princeton Theological Seminary, William headed to Cairo in Egypt to study Islam and Arabic in preparation. But that didn't mean that his life was only about that one goal of getting to northwest China. You see, wherever he went, he took opportunities to share the gospel with others, even though it frightened him as much as it does anybody else. And he began prayer groups at Yale, and he served in his local churches wherever he went. One of his professors at Princeton stated that William had the greatest personal impact on him more than any other student, and that his complete consecration and devotion to Christ were a revelation to him. And his confidence in prayer was a continual inspiration. Now, for many of us sitting here, that surrendered life isn't going to look like becoming a missionary in China. But you have to at least ask yourself the question, why not? Why wouldn't that be your life? Is it because you have totally surrendered to Christ and you're convinced that you can best serve Him and follow Him here? Or is it because you've taken that option off the table for God? If it's the latter, then that's a question that you need to think about long and hard. Because Jesus doesn't let you take that option off the table. You see, that's a, that's a follow Jesus, but keep your yoke and oxen kind of partial surrender. And of course, the same question can be asked of the opposite consideration. Why wouldn't you stay in Darwin or in Australia? Whichever the question is, the same rationale goes. You know, I pray that our church would be one that has people totally surrendered to Christ right here and continues to send totally surrendered followers of Jesus all over the globe. And so for those of us who are staying, who aren't becoming overseas missionaries, what does that look like to be totally surrendered in 21st century Darwin? How do we pay the cost? Well, Let me give you one guiding principle and one example of how we do exactly that. I had a conversation with a friend just this week about how it is that we can discern what God wants us to do in life. And that's an important question to consider. And so as a guiding principle, I think uh, the, the first principle we ought to have in being totally surrendered to Jesus, means going to what God says to all His children first, before trying to figure out what that means for me, specifically. We need to go to what God says to all His people first, before trying to figure out what that means for me, specifically. And that means going to the Bible, Spending time in it, memorizing portions of it, and seeking to understand what he calls all of his children to do always. To, to discover, discern, and to uh, internalize and to feed on the, the words that he has given to all of his children in all places at all times. And, you know, when we do that, what we find is that the Bible is not just a book of instructions. It's not just a a self-help book that gives you you 10 steps to live the ultimate life with Jesus. No, what, what we find in Scripture are the very words of the one who knows us completely, who sees our sin and our faults and who calls us to come to him to receive forgiveness of sin, to receive the pearl of great price, to receive living water that will not run out, to receive treasure that will not rust or fade. The more you see Jesus in his word, the more you love him. The more you, you dive into his word, the more the glum gray of the, the mundane of daily life bursts with color. The more you see him and yourself truly, then the deeper your joy in the midst of wherever he leads you as you follow him. The more you see that Jesus paid it all in his word. The more gladly you pay the cost of surrendering all. You see, this same Word has sustained and guided countless faithful brothers and sisters in Christ for thousands of years. And so when we go first and continually to the Word, Our heads and our hearts become more and more shaped by the Holy Spirit so that even in the very specific details of our lives, we're thinking not about our own wants. We're we're thinking not about how, how things will fit and be best for us, but about how our lives may be totally surrendered to Christ. And the more we will think in every situation, how can I follow Christ with even greater love and devotion and faithfulness? there are many ways this shakes out in our lives and one very clear example of this is well what are you most excited about what do you love the most what do you want to talk about the most now my footy team is essendon and if they'd beaten the ladder leading top team melbourne last night Then And and all I wanted to talk to you about at church the next day was how great that win was, how much of a scalp it was for the underdogs to take them, and how Essendon's on the rise. If I did that on a day where we're supposed to be coming to fix our eyes on Jesus together as a church, then it would be pretty clear what I love most, wouldn't it? If you want to know what you love the most... Listen to yourself. Talk to others. Now, please don't go from here and, and force yourself to start talking about Jesus at every opportunity. That, that would not be good. No, what, what, what you need to do is, is keep feeding your soul. Keep having your mind transformed by the Holy Spirit through His Word. And to keep surrendering your life to Him. And the more and more that you do that, then the more it will flow out of you. Now, sadly, in much of evangelical Christianity today, we flip that order. We think about the things we want first. And then we see if we can make the Bible fit our own desires. I get that this is challenging. It's hard because when you read the Bible, it doesn't give you specific instructions for your own life. It's not like God names you and what you should do right there in the Word. But this is a way that God has given us to continue to surrender our lives to Him, to shape our hearts for Him, to transform our minds for Him. What bridges remain standing in your life? What's your fail-safe in case Jesus fails you? Friends, ultimately, we will all pay a cost. We'll either pay the cost of our own sins and souls I receiving, receiving the penalty of eternal t- punishment, t- punishment t- for it now. I will pay the cost of following Jesus, in whom is salvation and forgiveness of sin. Yes, it will cost us our lives. Yes, it will come with trials and suffering. But the reward far surpasses anything you could possibly imagine. He will not fail you. Jesus puts it this way in Mark 10 verses 29 to 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. With persecutions. And in the age to come. Eternal life. In 1913. At the young age of 25. While in Cairo. William Borden got cerebral meningitis and died. Many, of course, lamented this. And many asked why God would take such a promising young man who seemed like he was about to achieve so much good for the kingdom. A man who was so sold out, whose life was just so uh, dedicated and devoted to God. Why? Why, God? Why would you take somebody in the prime of his life with so many more decades of serving you to come? And yet William himself, along with those who knew him, knew That he hadn't somehow slipped through God's fingers. Just as William had surrendered his life completely to the will of God. He also trusted. That his will was good. Even if it meant taking him. And bringing him home at a young age. At his funeral. William's mother watched as her son's body was lowered into the grave. And a feeling swept over her. Not of pain at the outward lack of harmony. But of wonderful joy and comfort. In the thought of that entire life. Spent for Christ. Scarcely a moment of it wasted. As his biographer put it. It is the surrendered life that counts. For through it. God can work. Will you answer the call? Will you pay the cost? Will you burn your bridges? Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we glorify you. We praise you for this word, this passage this morning of Elisha's great devotion of his total and complete surrender to you. We praise you and thank you for William Borden and so many others like him who lived lives of complete surrender. And Father, we are reminded and see how all too easily we leave bridges still standing. We have backup plans because of our fear of going all in with you. And so we ask that you would forgive us. We confess, Lord, that this is something that is not possible in our strength. And so we ask, Lord, that we would answer the call of Christ to follow you, to have blinkered vision, to be ready and willing and joyful to pay the cost knowing that the reward in this life and in the next far exceeds that which we give up. By your Spirit, we ask and pray, by your grace, that you would do these things in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.